This week, the New York Public Library podcast welcomes acclaimed novelist Joyce Carol Oates to Books at Noon, the library's new series of free lunchtime author talks. This podcast is made possible by the generous support of listeners like you. Learn more at nypl.org. Afternoon. Uh, I'm Jadrian Steele with the New York Public Library, and I am happy to welcome you to Books at Noon. Uh, we have a, a really special treat today um, with Joyce Carol Oates. Um, she really needs no introduction, um, but she won the uh, National Book Award in 1970 for them. Uh, she's won uh, two O. Henrys. Um, she's w- received the National Humanities Medal and uh, been nominated for the Pulitzer Prize three times. Uh, In the interest of full disclosure, uh, I've known Joyce for 20 years. She was my uh, thesis advisor at Princeton, so I'm uh, honored to get to be speaking with her today. So I thought maybe we'd begin with setting. Um, You said once that a lot of your stories grow out of a magical combination of character and setting. And I was hoping you could talk about your setting, as in your office and where you work. Well, my setting, can you all hear me? Uh, well, I grew, I grew up in western New York State in, Nia- in Erie County, which is right near Niagara County, south of Lake Ontario. So it's a very distinctive sort of in some ways, desolate part of New York State. And I remember spending a lot of time as a girl wandering in, in the woods and along a, along a creek. So that's sort of my, the, the landscape of my spiritual self is this rural, somewhat desolate area. And I really feel happy and I sort of come alive in settings like that. So I feel empowered or inspired to write. Mm-hmm by settings like that. A, lo- a number of my stories and novels, especially in my early career, is set in western New York State. Well, let's talk about the very beginning. Um, you know, you published your first novel in, in 1964 and have written um, more or less a novel uh, each year since then. But I heard a story from the beginning when you were teaching yourself to write that you would write novels uh, beginning to end and then start over and then throw them away. Could you elaborate on that? Well, I was also taking piano lessons, and the analog is that when you're, when you're t- trying to learn piano or any musical instrument, you spend a lot of time just sort of exercising keys and practicing. And I think that writers do something analogous, that when you're in high school, maybe in college, you're writing and learning a s- skills and a craft. You're learning things, perhaps even unconsciously, that is like apprentice work. And I did a lot of that. And I'm actually writing a memoir now, so a lot of these memories are very fresh in my mind because I've been looking at old family albums and snapshots. And so I feel more in touch with my high school self than I do with my real contemporary self. And what's that like? Well, I remember the excitement of reading things for the first time. And now I'm teaching, I have an anthology, and I'm teaching classic American literature, like a story by Jack London, something by William Faulkner, something by Hemingway, and so forth. And some of my students in the room have not, never read these stories before. And there's a certain excitement when you read for the first time a classic. 
And those of us who've been teaching for years have read these classics many times, and you always find something new to admire. But the first time you read one of these is so exciting. So when you're a young writer, say you're in high school or maybe in college, you're reading the exemplary texts of your culture for the first time. And what were you reading? Do you remember when you were in high school? Was there, were there particular books that were inspirational that made you think, I can be a writer? Or yeah. I want to be a writer? Well, there are a number of books that were really very uh, galvanizing to me. The first great book of my whole life was when I was nine, nine years old, which was Lewis Carroll's Alice in Wonderland and Alice to the Looking Glass. And my grandmother gave me this illustrated copy of these books. This was absolutely electrifying because, as I said, I was only nine years old and I was living on a farm in the country and there were no books there. We had, we had virtually no culture. <laughs> I mean, the idea of culture <laughs> in Millisport would maybe be a seed catalog or so a brochure about chickens because we had, we had Rhode Island red chickens and I took care of the chickens. So that was like the level of culture reading about care of chickens. So when I got this book, I was very, very impressionable and very avid. I'm not like children today who already at the age of four months probably have their iPhones and they're playing and their video games, you know, and they're doing all these things. It was not like that in my, in my day. There was no television. I mean, the, the idea of a radio was very radical. <laughs> radical and exciting. <laughs> and so when I read Alice and Alice of the Looking Glass, it literally like opened a door of the imagination to me. And I immediately started imitating that by with writing on tablet paper and, and drawing chickens and cats is all I knew. So all my early novels have chickens and cats standing up. The cats are standing up. They seem to be like at a cocktail party. I don't know where I got that from. So we have chickens and cats. I didn't feel competent to do the human figure. That took a little while longer. <laughs> and then the next novel, I mean, the next big impression of my life would probably be Henry David Thoreau. I read Walden because of a teacher in high school who loved Walden. And we're all formed by our special teachers in middle school and high school. We all probably, all of us had one great teacher who had great ideas. And I remember this teacher taught Walden. And the whole class read it and we loved it. And Thoreau's voice, a kind of droll, sarcastic, adolescent, poetic, intellectual, very deconstructionist, skeptical voice of Henry David Thoreau that's lodged very deeply in me, and that's what part of my, the influences of my, of my life. Then when I was a little older, I started reading very generally. I was reading, you know, Emily Bronte's Weathering Heights, and started reading Hemingway when I was in high school, and imitating Hemingway. He's very, the early stories of Hemingway are very wonderful for young writers because they're beautifully crafted, almost skeletal, nothing extraneous in them. They look easy, and they're not easy. And so when you read the early Hemingway stories, 
you're reading very fluently, and when you're all finished, you're not sure what it means. And it's somewhat like a riddle, so you read it again. And that's, I think, what art is. Art makes us go back to it a second or a third time. It seems as if it's accessible, but maybe it's not so simple. So did you find that you were both developing your voice and technique during that period where you were writing so prolifically before publishing? Well, I think a lot of what we do is unconscious, and I was drawn to these texts. Because when I was nine years old, I had no idea of a career. I didn't think, well, this would look good on my resume if I probably Princeton University to teach or something. You know, when you're nine, you're, you're just basically drawn by your, your in, interests and your passions. And I wasn't exactly joking when I said it was an era before television or, or videos or iPhones and internet, because in those days, you, your imagination had to be generated by your own effort. You couldn't just switch on a television or put in a DVD, you would do your own thinking, like the Bronte sisters and their brother Bramwell, who were all alone with books, and they didn't have any other companions, and they had no way of entertaining themselves except making up their own stories. So that's, that's a significant difference. I don't know whether it will make a difference in our culture, now, when we see films today and television episodes, series, they are very well done, but I think they represent almost collaborative efforts. Mm. Um, anything, that, anything new that's written today is some sort of conglomeration of things that have been done before, and they're sort of all mixed together in a good way that can be very, very good, but I think that's a new a new era in our culture when young people don't think so much for themselves but they take images from the past and, and put them together in a kind of postmodernist way. Mm -hmm. I mean, both the Carol and the Thoreau sort of thematically uh, deal with escape in a lot of ways and, and, and I think that that is something that's sort of throughout, well, especially in this book, Exile, throughout your work and I was wondering if that's something that you were trying to escape from, from that location, or was it just exciting being able to step into a totally different life, of different characters? Well, certainly the Alice in Wonderland and Alice the Looking Glass take us to a different world. But if you remember from the books themselves, Alice goes through the looking glass and she sees everything in, in reverse. She's at, it's a way of looking at her own world. Mm -hmm. You know, we're looking at our own world, but with the different, different kinds of eyes. Mm -hmm. And I think that what I did but not consciously, because I didn't know necessarily what I was doing. I took on some of the, the aesthetic ideals of Ernest Hemingway, but I used them for completely different stories, because I'm a, I'm a, I was a girl, and I was more likely to write about female experiences, which Hemingway would, would not have been caught dead writing about. <laughs> you know, like, it's, it wasn't... He has one story, Hills Like White Elephants, which is very much sort of posits a woman's point of view, and she has moral superiority to the man in the story. Hills Like White Elephants, it's a beautiful story. I think that may be the only story in all of Hemingway where a woman has the moral center. 
But the Hemingway ideal is to write only about serious things. Hemingway very rarely wrote about anything that wasn't a matter of life and death, something very, very crucial, sometimes verging upon nightmare. Um, he was the master of alluding to things in the periphery of vision that were too powerful to acknowledge. And that's good for a writer to know, rather than being so blatant or so obvious or explicit or overwrought, it's better to be subtle. So Hemingway was a master of understatement. And I think all those are, are very good ideals. Then the other writer that I, I sort of became infatuated with in, in high school after Hemingway was Faulkner. Faulkner is the antithesis of Hemingway. And when you read Hemingway, you're not much aware of American history at all. You know, it's denuded. It's a really depopulated world of Hemingway, very few people in it. He writes about northern Michigan, and it's a, a rural area, but nobody in the stories is really from that part of Michigan. They're from the Chicago area. Whereas with Faulkner, everything is history. And he's in Oxford, Mississippi, and his whole passion and whole reason for his writing is to tell the story of the defeated South and the South that's overwhelmed with tragic guilt. And that gives Faulkner his great subject. But that's very different from Hemingway. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm, I'm always curious in, in the road not taken, and you said you were studying piano when you were a child. What, what, if you had to live an alternate life, what might you have done other than being a writer? Well, an alternative life, I've always been a teacher. And when I was a really little girl, I was so excited with the idea of being a teacher. So every grade I was in, I thought I'd teach that grade. Like third grade, I'd be a third grade teacher. And I got to middle school, and there was a little time when I had a romance of being a gym teacher. <laughs> then when I was in high school, of course, to be a high school teacher. Then I went to college, and, I, and it was all so exciting to be a college teacher. And these are sort of like fantasies, as I've always loved working with students. And recently, when I did this memoir, uh, somebody wrote to me, and she said, do you remember, Joyce, you would take us out. I went to a one-room schoolhouse out in the country. It was like pioneer days. And she said, do you remember, Joyce, you would take us out, and we would sit around a, a, beneath a tree, and you would go over our lessons with us. So I have this early image of myself <laughs> teaching these little my little classmates, and I didn't, I didn't actually remember that, but it seemed like a kind of sweet image. Absolutely. So maybe we'll talk a little bit about Carthage. Um, and it's interesting that you mention Hemingway and Faulkner because I think there are elements of, of both of them in the book. Um, but maybe we'll start with the structure. Um, you describe several times in the book uh, Cressida's drawings, the, the M.C. Escher, um, specifically ascending and descending. Um, which are sort of involve a kind of visual dislocation. And I wondered if that was part of the motivation behind the nonlinear structure of the book, which sort of jumps back and forth in time and location. Well, I wanted to tell a story about inter intertwined lives, particularly from the point of view of a, of a young woman, a girl. She's about 19 years old, 20 years old, and she gets to be a few years old or so. She's fairly young. And she's somebody with whom I identified very strongly. 
though she is not me. And her life is intertwined with her, uh, the life of a young man who is an Iraqi war veteran who had been returned from the war, and he's, he's neurologically impaired. And I'm actually married to a neuroscientist, and I've done a lot of some reading in neuroscience and reading things that connected with my husband's work. And so I got interested in the idea of our perceptions and how we're, we can be impaired. And a whole society, actually, in a metaphorical way, can be impaired and be, and be blinded. So I wanted their lives to be intertwined. And there are not, there are not lovers. The, the girl is in love with the man. He's not in love with her. He's engaged to her sister. So basically, I thought of these two voices. And the first voice in the novel is the girl's voice, Cressida. That's her voice. Then later on in the novel, we go to his voice. And then at the end of the novel, we're, we're back with her voice. And I needed to go through time and space. So there's a leap sort of in the middle. And you're going several years later. And it sounds, it sounds more complicated maybe than it actually is. I think if people just read it, that you, there's not much problem. There is the sense that almost everyone in the book is either um, broken already or gets broken over the course of the book, whether it's the corporal who you describe returns from the war damaged, um, or uh, Zeno, Cressida's father, who you spend a lot of time uh, sort of, there's a sort of tactility to, to you describe his body as being soiled or sallow or sagging. Um, and then Arlette, her mother, there's a great line where you say that something skeletal had taken hold in her. And I, and I wondered, is it something that it was just, that that's a, a manifestation of something within them um, emotionally? Or, or are you trying to comment on something more throughout society? Well, it's probably um, a both. I think that our society is sort of gripped by um, self-destruction. I mean, all these things are somewhat cliches, and we all, know, we all know about it. But I wanted to show how, within a family, things can be ca catastrophic in a family, and yet, if you hang on and you have goodwill and good luck, eventually, you can, all, you can come back. It's, I don't believe that things are just downhill. I think this can be tragic and catastrophe, but there's a way of dealing with that and then you sort of come back up again. So um, the novel has a sort of Dostoevskian curve of redemption, and I have been reading a rereading Crime and Punishment. There's this wonderful scene where Sonia says to, to Raskolnikov, who's confessed a murder, two, mur two murders to her, and she sees in his face that he is remorseful, and she says, You must kiss the earth that you have defiled and God will love you again. And I thought that was such a, beaut such a beautiful line in literature because Raskolnikov seems beyond forgiveness. He's done something terrible. He's killed one very, very innocent person. He's killed two people, but one of them is not, was not a planned murder. It was sort of like nature rising up and... Is, irrevocable harm that he's done. 
but yet he can, he can be forgiven. And so in my novel, this young woman who has done really something very cruel to her family, which I won't tell you what it is, she did something very cruel, but really unthinkingly and almost helplessly because she was so hurt. But she can be forgiven and she can mend. And so the novel ends. It's not exactly a happy ending, but I meant it to be a, a redemptive ending. Well, you, you were mentioning, you know, the daughter, and you know that sort of brings me to to Zeno and Zeno's paradox that you mention uh, several times as well in the book, which is, uh, to simply put it, it's the mathematical model that uh, sort of says that you can never reach your destination because there are an infinite number of steps uh, within it and you describe it as infinity within the finite. And I found myself questioning, well, what was Cressida's goal? And it seems that it's a sort of self-annihilation. Um, well, she does become an artist. In the first part of the novel, when she's younger, she's imitating M.C. Escher. M.C. Escher, you probably all know, his very um, conceptual art. He does staircases where people, you can look, the staircase, people walking up, and there's a staircase on the bottom, people walking the double staircase, and that we're all mimicking one another anonymously, and his figures don't have any identity. And they're, they're like mathematical designs. He would, like, he would like this room. This is sort of like an M.C. Escher space where human beings are part of a design. But then in the second half of the novel, she sort of wakes up out of that solipsistic dream and she actually looks at people. And so she starts drawing actual portraits of people and looking around at people near her, which I think is a completely different vision for the artist. And maybe it's more mature, I, I can't judge that, but I, I think M.C. Escher is a great artist. But there's another kind of art that's the Picasso, the young Picasso, where the line drawings of people's faces are so, so beautiful. And that kind of art seems to have more richness and human resonance. Um, I'm going to open it up to the audience uh, in just a few minutes. But I wanted to ask, you know, there's obviously uh, references to um, the ancient cities and ancient culture in the book from the title, uh, that, that uh, Tunisian city that was destroyed, you know, where Dido was, and you describe Zeno, um, of course, Zeno the philosopher, um, and you also describe him as a sort of aging Roman general, to the war itself in Iraq. And I wondered what you were trying to say with those references. Is it something that this sort of violence that we do to ourselves and the people we love is, is sort of timeless and inevitable, or...? Yes, I think I was thinking of that. When I, when I first began writing in college, I would often have a sort of classical or maybe Elizabethan references, having, having read some Shakespeare and, and some ancient Greek tragedy. Of course, Juliet and Cressida with the daughter's yeah. names. Yes, and just the sense that what we're doing and living through now is not the first time this has ever been experienced. And there's a certain... Uh, the, the, res, the residence of our predecessors and the idea maybe that Homer in the Iliad and the Odyssey sort of struck all the 
the most powerful and potent themes in literature in those two, those two great works at the very beginning of our literature. The Iliad is the, war, the great book of war, and it's just like the last word. You know, you think anyone who read the Iliad, there would never be another war after that. But of course, it has no effect. And then the Odyssey is the great novel. Um, what is a tragedy? The other is not a tragedy exactly, but Odysseus spends all this time with all these adventures, these iconic and fantastical creatures and people, and then he comes back home. So it's the, so the great novel of the warrior, the veteran of the war coming back home. So those two, those two great works of art almost encompass everything. And then from the woman's point of view in the 20th century and 21st century, there's so many special themes that, w that women have begun to write about. And the women's point of view of the same subjects is different. And the perspectives are exciting and sometimes irreverent and subversive and, and funny. And sort of turning the masculine pretensions, if I may use that word, uh, mask, I should say ideals, masculine ideals slash pretensions. So turn them upside down, you know, and see it from a woman's perspective. I have a lot of uh, portraits of women and girls in my novels who are just seeing some of the same things with a slightly different view. All right, well, um, there's, uh, I think we'll try to take two or three. Um... It was fascinating to hear you speak of the voice changing back and forth in your new work. Uh, one of my favorite works that does that is Virginia Woolf's The Waves. Oh, yes. And I was wondering if that had influenced you at all. Well, I'm, I'm, I didn't really read Virginia Woolf until I was a bit older. Now, the waves, as I remember, the voices are all the same, aren't they? There's not a distinction between the voices. There, there are three women's voices and three men's voices. They do tend to... They sound talk alike. about the same things, and they sound similar, quite similar. Well, they sound exactly alike as far as I could hear. You know, oh, she's a great writer, but she's basically not interested. In, she's not interested in some of the same things. I'm actually interested in drama and people's voices that are different from one another. Like if I wrote a novel with six people in it, they would sound different. But Virginia, Virginia Woolf, she wouldn't want them all to sound alike for her own reasons. But maybe, where she, maybe in Bloomsbury, they all did sound alike, you know. <laughs> but I'm from, I live in New Jersey much of the time, and, you know, it's different from Virginia Woolf. <laughs> uh, I was interested in how you come up with and flesh out some of your characters, because Many of them are troubled. I'm thinking of like Skyler, yes. um, uh, Cressida, um, and others, and they're different in their their problems. Um, how do you think up these characters and, and flesh them out? Well, it's a good question. Basically, I just work at it. You know, the more time you take. I try to tell my students, you don't write a novel or even conceive of a novel in one week. You don't get the idea in, in one minute. You kind of work with it. You know, it's like meeting, new, meeting a new person. First, it's somewhat superficial. You see obvious characteristics. Then you get to know the person. You let the person talk, let the characters talk. After six months, 
you just know so much more. It's basically the novel is the the novel is the great work of patience. You take time. You take time with a novel. It's like cultivating a garden. You put the little seeds in, and they come up. And you can't be impatient. And I don't. I don't write swiftly. And my novel with Skyler as the narrator is called My Sister, My Love, and that was my novel about the, ch which I don't think anybody's written about much, to be the children of tabloid parents, where your parents have committed some action that they're in the tabloids, and you're the next generation, and how do you live with that name? And basically, that was fascinating to me. So I spent a lot of time with him expressing himself as a teenager, and then near the end of the novel, he starts to come out. You know, he starts to come out of that. Thank you. Hi. Um, it seems to me, from what I understand, that women's roles in society have changed a lot over the course of your career. And I'm just wondering how that has affected your work and just your thoughts and feelings on that. This is another question that's very complex because it's true, women's roles have changed and, and the uh, presence of women in the world is much more visible. Is when I, I went to Syracuse University, which was a wonderful place for me, and my professors were very supportive, but they were all men. You know, I would look around and there was not a woman, even though they were supportive to me, but now the whole, it, the landscape has completely changed. So it's a positive change. Uh, the changes are very positive for women. There may be a backlash and there may be a downside to it, but I don't think there's anything else for women but, uh, but the opening up of possibilities. Then when I started publishing, the mainstream literature was all white, male, sort of educated, middle, upper middle class male writers. And nothing else really was prominent. Now there are all kinds of subcategories. There's, you know, ethnic American writing, Native American writing, gay and lesbian writing, black literature, you know, you could, you could name it. The literature of confession, um, the literature of dark fantasy. When you go into a bookstore now, you see all these categories. You can have a complete career and be very uh, successful and happy in a career in a, in a subcategory. But in, in the past, it was really just male writers. Once in a while, a woman writer would be successful, like Edna Ferber. She was very successful. And a, a sort of a holdover from that era would be Daniel Steele. She, again, enormously successful writers. Uh, but before that, Willa Cather was sort of a nominal male writer. She was such a good woman writer that she was sort of allowed in this canon of, of male writers. Edith Wharton was sometimes allowed in. There was Eudora Welty and Flannery O'Connor and very few others, but a lot of male writers. It was dominated by Hemingway. Well, this has been wonderful. Thank you so much. Um, Joyce will be uh, signing books uh, afterwards, and uh, thank you for coming. This podcast is made possible by the generous support of listeners like you. Learn more at nypl.org.